This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Mythology, the ParCast original devoted to bringing you humanity's oldest stories. Today we're completing our retelling of Virgil's Aeneid. This is the final entry in a four-part series, so if you haven't already, we recommend going back and starting from the beginning. I'm narrating the story from the perspective of Venus, Aeneas's mother and the Roman goddess of love. She looked after him throughout his journey, protecting him from danger and keeping him on course toward his destined future. Her nemesis in this endeavor was Juno, the queen of the gods, and Venus's stepmother. Juno hated the Trojans, and Aeneas in particular. Despite inflicting every form of torment she could imagine on him, she had not been able to prevent him from reaching Italy. But Juno wasn't finished with Aeneas yet, and before she let him rest, he would discover the true cost of destiny. After all, it was his ancestors who were meant to found Rome, not him specifically. Despite what the fates had said, it was entirely possible that he would lose everything and perish in this strange land. Now, the epic conclusion of the Aeneid. I never learned how to say goodbye. When I was a young goddess, I fell in love with a beautiful mortal man named Adonis. I was terrified that he would eventually die, and asked Proserpina, the wife of Hades, to help me keep him safe. But not even the queen of the dead can prevent the fate that awaits all mortals. I found Adonis in the woods one day, gored by a wild boar he'd been hunting. I could not bear the thought of never seeing his face again, so I willed a crimson flower to grow from the spot where he lay. I hoped that when I looked down from Olympus and saw it, I would be reminded of his face. But whenever I see those flowers now, the only thing I remember is his blood pooling on the forest floor. When Aeneas was born, I knew that same fate awaited him. The specter of his death consumed my thoughts. So on his fifth birthday, I brought him to his father's house and left him there. It took all my strength to leave my child in Anchises' arms, but I told myself it was necessary, that saying goodbye now would make it easier later. I did not account for Juno. 
My stepmother's plan had unfurled beautifully. Aeneas had arrived in Italy, the home he'd been promised by the fates, only to find it teeming with enemies. Juno had turned the Latins' heart against him, inspiring them to ally with the Rutulian warlord, Turnus. Their massive army marched on the Trojan fort, left in the command of my young grandson, Ascanius. And where was Aeneas? Miles away, seeking allies amongst the Arcadians, not knowing that an army far greater than his own was amassing before his son's eyes. His time had run out. Ascanius knew that the Trojans could not hold out for long, but one hope sustained him. He had sent his two fastest runners to warn Aeneas and bring him back to the battle without delay. Their names were Nisus and Euryalus, and as night fell on Italy, they were crouched in the tall grass, surveying the Rutulian camp. It will take too long to go around, Nisus whispered to Euryalus. You should return to the fort. I can warn Aeneas alone. Euryalus shot his friend a wry smile. If I remember correctly, you were the one with a mouthful of sand while I crossed the finish line at Drepanum. When you get back to the fort, tell my mother I'll have Aeneas back by dawn. Neither Trojan was willing to budge, so they watched and waited until the campfires burned low. Then, with a final prayer to the gods, they drew their swords and crept into the camp. The Rutulians were asleep, having drunk themselves into a stupor in preparation for the coming battle. The sight of their enemies lying prone before them was too much for Nisus and Euryalus to pass up. They fell on the sleeping officers, cutting throats and lopping off heads as quietly as they could manage. Euryalus had just laid waste to a group of officers when a man came stumbling out of a tent. He took one look at the carnage around him, and his mouth fell open. Euryalus drove his blade right through it. As the Trojan lowered his dying victim to the ground, his eyes fell to the man's exquisitely crafted breastplate. When Nisus found him a moment later, Euryalus was strapping the armor to his own torso. Is now really the time for trophies? Nisus hissed. He changed his tune when Euryalus presented him with a brilliantly plumed helmet. Grinning with elation over their kills, the two Trojans dashed from the blood-soaked camp, leaving a wake of destruction behind. They raced through the night, legs flying beneath them, wordlessly urging one another on. They hadn't gone far when they heard the sound of men marching up ahead. Nisus dragged Euryalus off the road and into a ditch moments before a Rutulian squadron came around the bend. Nisus didn't move an inch as the men marched past. Euryalus reached out to squeeze his hand. Once again, they had passed beneath the enemy's nose unseen. Almost unseen. The Trojans heard a shout from the road. Euryalus's breastplate had caught a beam of moonlight, alerting the Rutulians to their position. Sharing a look of horror, Nisus and Euryalus pushed themselves to their feet and dashed into the woods with their enemies in close pursuit. 
Branches whipped their bodies as they plunged through the underbrush, no longer making any efforts to mask the sounds of their footsteps. Nisus kept going until a cry from behind brought him to a sudden stop. Euryalus, he gasped, turning on his heels. With no thought for his own life or his mission, he went back for his friend. I'm afraid I did not watch what followed next. I had no more stomach for Trojan deaths. When the trumpets sounded the next morning, the severed heads of Nisus and Euryalus were carried ahead of the army on twin pikes. Ascanius watched from the ramparts, unable to turn away from the slackened faces of his friends. They had failed. Aeneas had not been warned. No one was coming. The army charged. They surged on the Trojan fortress from every direction, bearing battering rams and ladders. Volleys of arrows from the Trojan archers peppered the front ranks, barely slowing their advance. Ascanius saw a column of Latins make a break for the front gate. A wall of shields defended them from the sides and above, like the shell of a tortoise. He shouted for his archers to hold their fire and watched as the formation came closer. When they were almost at the gates, he shouted his command. A huge boulder was rolled to the edge of the wall and pushed over the ramparts. It crashed into the center of the Latins, crushing several and sending the rest sprawling. At Ascanius's next order, the archers rained arrows down onto the soldiers until not one was left alive. The Trojans further down the walls were not faring as well. No matter how many volleys they fired into the horde, the Rutulians kept coming until they were at the base of the fort. Swords and spears, Ascanius yelled as the ladders hit the ramparts. And then the Rutulians were among them, hacking and stabbing and howling like wild animals. The walls ran red. Ascanius kept his head through it all. He ordered his men first to one end of the fort, then another, bolstering the defenses and countering every assault. Wave upon wave of Latins and Rutulians surged over the walls, only to meet their ends on Trojan spears. But when Ascanius looked out at the fields below, the sea of enemies seemed as vast as ever. An outcry drew his attention to the far corner of the fortress, where black smoke was curling into the sky. One of the towers was on fire. It collapsed before Ascanius's eyes, dragging the Trojans and Latins who had been fighting there down with it. The young commander shouted over the din, calling on his men to reinforce the gaping hole in the wall. A massive silhouette clambered over the rubble, wreathed in smoke and flames. The figure bore a sword in one hand and a spear of black oak in the other. Turnus had arrived. He charged the approaching Trojans, cutting them down with ease as he carved a path toward the gates. Ascanius knocked an arrow and drew the string taut, searching for a gap in Turnus's armor, but the sea of fighting Trojans was too thick and he could not find a clear shot. A less patient man would have given up, but my grandson had spent untold hours tracking game through the forest, waiting for the perfect shot. 
So he held his position, unfazed, until he saw the whites of Turnus's eyes. A troop of Latins came surging over the wall, crashing around Ascanius. He spun, firing his arrow into the skull of a captain stepping off the ladder. The man tumbled backwards and plummeted to the earth. Ascanius turned back to look down at the courtyard. Two Trojans stood between the warlord and the gate. Ascanius had placed them there, with instructions to not let any man pass through alive. Turnus removed both their heads with a single sweep of his blade. He stepped over their crumpled bodies, easily lifted the giant door jam, and threw the gates wide. Ascanius stared out at the field, watching the Latin and Rutulian forces surge toward the open gates. Forgive me, father, he cried in despair. You held the gates of Troy for ten years, and I could not last a day. I wanted to scream, you're wrong, Ascanius, but I did not have to wait long for him to see the truth. A distant rumble reached his ears, and he turned north toward the river Tiber. A wall of white was building on the horizon, growing closer with frightening speed and filling the air with a powerful roar. Ascanius's eyes widened as he realized what it was. Fourteen river nymphs leapt and dove through the water, kicking up spray and dragging the current along behind them. And right behind them, carried on the crest of the wave, were more than a dozen ships. Ascanius shouted aloud with joy as he recognized the first sail. His father had returned. Aeneas stood at the helm, surveying the battlefield. The Trojan fort still stood. Well done, Ascanius, he whispered, heart swelling with pride. Beside him, the young prince Pallas gave the order for his men to ready their weapons. The ship and everyone that followed was packed to the rails with Arcadian soldiers and cavalry. King Evander had sent every man he could muster. The moment they touched land, Aeneas was on the shore and running, with Pallas and the Arcadians close on his heels. They crashed into the Rutulian flank, catching them by surprise and splitting their forces. Aeneas and Pallas fought side by side, cutting down Rutulians and Latins as they carved a path through the army. The battle surged back and forth like a breaking storm, until Aeneas found Pallas in the fray and pulled him aside. Fall back to the fort and help Ascanius, he said urgently. I'll take my force into the Latin flank and push them away from the walls. Pallas protested, not yet ready to leave the madness of the pitched battle, but Aeneas was already plunging ahead through the fray. Years had passed since I'd watched my son in the thick of battle. I'd almost forgotten the sight of it. He waded through his enemies, severing limbs and cleaving skulls, painting the fields with Latin brains and Rutulian blood. None could oppose him. His enemies either fell beneath his sword or turned and fled. The Latins were the first to break ranks. Some even threw down their weapons for a faster escape. The hardy Rutulians could have fought forever, but without the greater force to bolster them, they had no choice but to follow suit. 
Aeneas pursued his enemies to the crest of the next hill. When he was finally confident that they would not return, he turned and raced back to the fort without delay. My grandson was waiting for him at the gates, his face ashen with guilt. I had him, father, Ascanius said bitterly. I had Turnus penned in when the Arcadians arrived. He should have been dead to rights, but he somehow fought his way back to the Tiber and jumped in. I tried to hit him, but the current was too quick. Aeneas threw his arms around his son, cutting off his explanation. When they finally separated, Aeneas turned and surveyed what remained of the Arcadian and Trojan force. His brow furrowed. Where is Pallas? he asked. Ascanius's face fell, but he did not have to respond. Aeneas had already seen the body. Pallas lay stretched out on the floor of the courtyard, a gaping hole in his breastplate. His shield lay nearby, impaled on Turnus's black spear. Coming up, Aeneas seeks retribution, while Venus seeks an end to Juno's meddling. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. The siege was over. Ascanius had held off Turnus's army until Aeneas arrived with reinforcements. The Arcadian king Evander had sent his army to rescue the Trojans. His own son, Pallas, had fought valiantly, but had been cut down in the heat of battle by Turnus himself. The prince's body was laid on a stretcher of oak branches and covered in a blanket of leaves. Four captains lifted the bows and marched north to deliver him to his father. A line of Arcadian soldiers followed, their spears pointed downward at the earth, and Pallas's riderless horse trailing behind. Aeneas watched this grim progression with his own son beside him. When Pallas's parade had disappeared over a hill, he turned to Ascanius. Allow the Latins and Rutulians to collect their dead, he said. We will give them twelve days of peace for the funeral rites. Then we march on Laurentum. Aeneas turned and strode back through the Trojan camp. As he stepped through the entrance of his tent, he froze and his mouth fell open. Hello, my son, I said. Aeneas stared at me for a long moment before stepping fully inside the tent. Why have you come? He asked, reverent as ever. I smiled back at him. Does a mother need a reason to visit her child? I asked. Then I turned and gestured toward the end of the tent. I brought you something. Aeneas stepped toward his gifts, eyes wide with wonder. An ornate breastplate lay on a chest, sparkling with gold and silver. In addition to this, there were two other powerful objects. He ran his hands over the smooth-domed helmet and tested the weight of the sword. 
These arms were forged for you by my husband Vulcan, the god of fire, I told him. May they guard you when I cannot. Then I presented Aeneas with his final gift, a great round shield etched with images depicting the future glory of Rome. Aeneas did not know what they meant, but he stared at the shield in wonder. What's the matter? I asked when I saw my son's face darken. You have always shielded me from every danger, he replied in a strained voice. I only wish that I could have done the same to my charges. I promised King Evander that I would look after Pallas like I would my own son, yet I sent him back a corpse. I considered my son, brimming with pride at the man he had become. You did treat that boy like your own son. You trusted him to fight beside you, I said, lifting the sword from the pile of gifts and pressing it into his hands. Now avenge him like a father. I left him there, returning to my chambers in Olympus. Mercury was waiting with a message. Jupiter had summoned me. I found my father in his grotto, along with all the gods of Olympus. They grew quiet as I made my way to the center of the amphitheater, coming to a stop directly before the king of the gods. Jupiter's face was inscrutable, but my own attention was fixed on the regal figure seated beside him. Juno, my stepmother and enemy, smiled back at me. Immortals, said Jupiter, opening the council with a rumble. This affair in Italy troubles me greatly. A war between the Latins and the Trojans. A war that the fates did not ask for. And now I hear whispers of quarrel in my own house. His eyes fell on me then, crackling with barely contained anger. Daughter, he growled. I told you that your Trojan son's destiny was fixed, yet you continue to interfere. Explain yourself. I felt the weight of every immortal eye on me, but I could not afford to show any doubt. Aeneas was counting on me. Interfere? I said more boldly than I felt. If meddling concerns you, look no further than your own wife. Juno has orchestrated my son's suffering from the start. She chased him from Troy, hounded him across the Aegean. She is even behind this war with the Latins. If I've interfered, it's only to serve the fates. If you still respect their word, then I beg you, father, put an end to Juno's mischief and bring Aeneas victory. The Olympians exploded into excited whispers the moment I finished my appeal. Jupiter turned to face his wife, fixing her with a quizzical stare. Juno's musical laugh echoed over the amphitheater. So I'm to blame for all the Trojan strife, am I? She chided. Have you forgotten why their great city fell? A Trojan prince stole a Greek bride and sparked a war. Was that my doing? Did I force the refugees to flee to Neptune's realm, the home of storms and monsters? Did I place the Latins in Italy ahead of them? Those people have a right to defend their own shores as much as any race. Or would you have them submit to your son, bloodthirsty conqueror that he is? The Olympians burst into chatter again, some applauding their queen. 
Fuming, I turned and stalked from the amphitheater, but I returned a moment later, dragging my evidence behind me. Gasps of alarm rang through the grotto as I threw a lecto at my father's feet. The fury flapped her leathery wings, hissing and clawing at the chain around her throat, but Vulcan's metal held strong. See Juno's handiwork before you, I cried. She raised this devil from hell and set her on the Latins. She defies the fates with every breath and action. Juno was already on her feet, howling curses. Liar, she cried. Slanderer, take your hollow accusations from my husband's house. You never gave a thought for the fates or anyone but that Trojan pup you birthed. Enough! Jupiter's roar echoed over Olympus, silencing the gods. I will hear no more of this, he said, glowering at Juno. Return the fury to Tartarus where she belongs. That will be the end of it. None of you will interfere in this matter again. I started to protest, but Jupiter silenced me with a glare. I hope you understand me, daughter. The Trojan's life is in the hands of the fates now. You have seen your son for the last time. As his words echoed through my mind, I felt like I was back at Anchises' doorstep, saying goodbye to my sobbing child. Juno was glaring at me from her dais, boiling with indignant fury. If I could never help my son again, at least I would know that he was out of her reach. I bowed, accepting my father's judgment. One other blessing came from Jupiter's council. The moment Electo was returned to her perch in Tartarus, her spell on the Latins broke. The people fell to arguing as anger gave way to fear. Turnus's failure had cost countless lives, and now the Trojans were marching on Laurentum. The chiefs and nobles that had once blazed with hatred for the Trojans were suddenly desperate to avoid conflict. "'You fools!' cried the warlord. "'If the Trojans march on Laurentum, then they march to their death. We still have the larger force by far. Cast aside your cowardice. Now's the time for swords and spears.' A trumpet interrupted him, sounding from the city gates and striking fear in the Latins' hearts. Had the Trojans arrived already? They wondered. But a moment later, the gates groaned open, allowing a single rider to enter. As she passed through the city, the people fell to their knees in wonder. Their princess had returned. King Latinus had been barricaded in his palace since the outset of war, but when he heard the news that Lavinia was back, he threw his doors open and raced down the steps to meet her. As they shared a teary embrace, she told him all that had happened. Her mother, Queen Amata, had come to her one night, saying that the palace was under attack. Mother and daughter had fled through a secret passage, escaping into the woods. It was only then that Lavinia realized the truth. A strange madness had taken the queen, filling her with wild thoughts and fury toward the Trojans. When Lavinia tried to leave, Amada bound her limbs and refused to let her go. Lavinia thought that she would die there, a prisoner to whatever force held her mother. 
but one morning she had awoken to find her bonds untied. Queen Amada had used the ropes to hang herself from an oak tree. The father and daughter were not allowed to grieve alone for long. Turnus arrived at the palace steps, demanding an audience with the king. With the Latin forces on the edge of revolt against him, he had turned to his last vestige of authority. Latinus, he bowed, a first sign of respect toward the king. I know that you were against this war from the start, but you are no coward. When the Trojans arrive at your walls, it will be to tear them down. Will you defend your city? Try as he might, Latinus could not deny that there was truth in the warlord's words. He had not asked for Trojan enemies, but after all that had happened between the two armies, he could no longer see a path to peace. But Lavinia could. Why should thousands of men die over the disagreement of a few? She asked Turnus. Prove that you are braver than the chiefs who doubt you. Fight Aeneas man to man. If he wins, let the Trojans stay in Latium. But if he dies, let them leave this land forever. Turnus laughed at her. Only a fool would take such a chance when they have the larger army, he sneered. When I meet Aeneas in battle, my soldiers will not stand by and watch. Lavinia smiled sweetly. It was not a suggestion, she said. Whoever wins the duel shall have my hand in marriage, and with it the throne of Latium. If you will not represent the Latins, I will find another who will. Turnus's eyes narrowed and his mouth curled into a scowl. He glared at Lavinia for a long moment. Send a message to the Trojans, he barked, rounding on his men. If the princess wants a duel, we shall give her one to remember. Coming up, Aeneas seeks retribution. Now, back to the story. It had all come down to this. Two armies met on the fields before the city of Laurentum. Trojans and Arcadians stood on one end, Latins and Rutulians on the other. Each force had bled at the hands of the other. Each man had watched brothers fall. But if all went to plan, only one more death awaited them. A treaty had been struck. Aeneas and Turnus would face one another alone, one final fight to determine the fate of the Trojans. If Aeneas won, he would marry Lavinia and claim the Latin throne. If he died, the Trojans would leave Italy forever, abandoning the home they had been promised. Aeneas stood at the front of his lines, clad in the armor I'd brought him. His sword hung from his belt. His right hand gripped his lance as Ascanius hefted the shield forged by Vulcan into his left. Its face shone in the morning light, displaying images of the future Rome, a future that hinged on this final fight. Aeneas whispered my name, asking me to deliver him through the coming battle, but this time I could not help him. Completely alone, my son walked out to meet his destiny. All eyes followed the two warriors as they made their way to the center of the field. 
The Latins, Rutulians, and Trojans watched, and so did Lavinia from the walls of Laurentum, and myself, and Jupiter, and every other immortal from Olympus, all save for Juno. I heard her voice across the wind. Hard in my throat, I tore my gaze from Aeneas and looked to the Rutulian front. There was Juno, in the guise of an old seer, babbling incessantly into their open ears. You have the Trojans two to one, yet you leave your captain to face the son of a goddess alone? What will your wives think? What will your children say? When your descendants sing of this day, will they say you defended their honor? Or that you wet yourselves on the sidelines while Turnus handed an empire to the Trojans? Already I could see her words taking effect. The Rutulians shifted uncomfortably, muttering defiant words and glaring death at their enemies. A shriek of fury tore through my throat as I cursed my stepmother's name. I wanted to scream, Look, father, look at your wife. See how she flaunts your command, how she tries the fates even now, at the very end. But it was too late. One young Rutulian man stepped forward and hurled his spear. It arched through the air and slammed into the gut of an Arcadian youth. Howls of rage whipped the Arcadians, and they charged forward across the field. The Rutulians came next, spurred by Juno's vile words. Then came the Latins, and finally the Trojans. Aeneas looked around in horror as his forces overtook him. He shouted for his men to pull back, to leave him to his fight, but it was too late. The armies crashed against one another like breaking waves. Men were driven forward into a wall of spears. Others were crushed between shields or dragged underfoot and crushed by their own armies. Blood sprayed and iron rang, and I cursed Juno's name again and again. My gaze followed Aeneas, though I still knew I could not help him. He darted through the fray, cutting down enemies, still searching for the one that mattered. Turnus was across the field, caught in battle with a group of Arcadians. Aeneas called the warlord's name. This is our fight, he bellowed. Come and face me. Turnus looked up and met my son's eyes. Then he began to back away. Aeneas's nostrils flared. He plunged forward to give chase, but he did not get far. The battle seemed to stand still as I watched my son fall. A stray arrow had struck him suddenly, lodging deep in his thigh. I had left him to fortune as Jupiter commanded. I should have known better. Fortune had not smiled on my son for years. I wasn't the only one who'd seen Aeneas fall. A moment earlier, Turnus had been ready to run, but now he watched Aeneas closely. He seized his opportunity. Aeneas saw the warlord coming through the crowd and pushed himself to his feet. Back, all of you, he cried to his men. Wounded as he was, he was still determined to keep the terms of the treaty and face Turnus alone. This time, the Trojans listened. They backed away from Aeneas, giving the warriors space. 
The Latins saw what was happening and did the same. Slowly, the fighting ground to a halt as both armies formed a circle around the leaders. The son of the goddess bleeds after all, Turnus glowered, eyeing Aeneas's wound. Let's empty his veins then. My son tore the arrow from his leg and charged. Turnus barreled toward him like a lion, too fast for his incredible size and the weight of his heavy armor. Both men hurled their spears in the same instant. Both glanced uselessly off the other's shields. The sound resounded over the battlefield as the warriors clashed. They circled one another like bulls, striking out with swords and shields. First one pressed forward, then the other, until Turnus slammed his pommel into Aeneas's wound. My son stumbled backwards, flailing for balance. Turnus loomed over him. He raised his giant sword above his head, and with all his strength and the weight of his mass, he brought it crashing down. The sword broke against Aeneas's shield. Aeneas rolled away, grabbing for his spear. He saw his opening and hurled his weapon with all his strength. The spear tore through Turnus's leg, pinning him to the ground. The Rutulians howled with rage and grief, but they did not move to help their fallen warlord. Turnus knelt there, blood pooling from his wound, a bladeless hilt in his hands. His breath came in pained, shallow gasps. One favor, Trojan he said as Aeneas approached. See that my body has a proper burial. I trust that it is not too much to ask. They say Anchises raised you well. The sound of his father's name gave Aeneas pause, and his heart was stirred with pity for the Rutulian. The battle was over. He had won by the terms of the treaty. The man did not have to die. Then his eyes fell on the gilded sword belt around the warlord's waist. It had belonged to Pallas, the young Arcadian prince. Turnus had torn the belt from his body after cutting him down at the Trojan fort. This blow is for Evander, and for Pallas, and for all fallen sons, he said. And without a second thought, Aeneas plunged his blade into the warlord's heart. My son stood at the center of the clearing, panting from the exertion of his fight. He felt the spot on his thigh where the arrow had pierced him, expecting to find a mortal wound, but there was none. All evidence of the injury had vanished. I admit it, I broke Jupiter's rule. What can I say? Juno did it first. And besides, he was my son. And... I never did learn how to say goodbye. After the battle, the Rutulians took Turnus's body with the rest of their fallen and left. The Latins kept the terms of the treaty, laying down their weapons and opening the gates of Laurentum to the Trojans. Lavinia and Aeneas were married soon after. Their people became one people, sharing their cultures and gods. I watched as Ascanius's children's children founded Rome, at the same site where the Arcadian city of Palantium once stood. 
I watched as their empire spread, bringing Juno's beloved Carthage to its knees. Not long after, they surged over the Peloponnesian Peninsula, laying waste to the Greek cities. One by one, all my son's enemies fell to the offspring of Trojans, and my mother-in-law's howls of fury echoed over Olympus for a century. As for Aeneas, well, he faded into history and legend. Some say he was killed in battle with the Rutulians many years after his fight with Turnus, others that he died in Laurentum, an old man. But I know the truth. As glad as he was to walk the path of fate, my son never forgot his homeland. One day when he was old and gray, when Lavinia had passed on and Ascanius had children of his own, Aeneas said farewell to his son and to Italy and set sail with 20 ships. My son had fulfilled his destiny, but that was behind him now. What lay ahead was an uncharted future and a dream that one day the walls of Troy would stand again. Thanks for joining us for this special series of mythology. This completes our retelling of Virgil's Aeneid. Starting Tuesday, we'll return to our regular format with a new episode drawn from humanity's oldest stories. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythology, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythology on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythology in the search bar. If you enjoy mythology, you'll love my other podcast, Tales. Tales presents fairy tales the way they were originally told, orally and unadulterated. Traditional fairy tales aren't exactly suitable for children. And every Wednesday, we dive into another dark, classic tale. Mythology will be back on Tuesday with another epic story. Mythology was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Mythology was written by Andrew Kelleher, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 